from the EPR Creation Studio. This is the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Jacksonville State game, and then we're going to go through some question and answer and just basic state of the program stuff. And uh, then I will tomorrow be releasing my Notre Dame preview. So this will be a reasonably short episode, but a few things left to discuss after the uh, after my after I've gone through the uh, the film for the uh, Jacksonville State game, and and so there's some there's some additional things that that are worth discussing. Uh, the first thing is I, I should bring this up because I mentioned it in the uh, on my Twitter feed before the game. Uh, knowing that there was going to be a change at, at, at quarterback, it was it was on my mind. But this is a worthwhile question to think about in terms of how things, how the culture got to where it has in Tallahassee, and that is prior to the 2020 class. So the class with Rotomaker and Purdy, who are both still uh, sort of TB, TBD in a lot of respects. Who was Florida State's last high character quarterback signee who was really a legitimate Florida state level starting potential quarterback. So thinking about quarterbacks with the, with the talent, the physical talent and the the quarterback talent to really be an, a good, a quality Florida state starter. When was the last time Florida state signed one of those players who you could say was really a high character guy. And, and that's a, that's an interesting question, right? And, and, and the reason I ask that is quarterback has an outsized impact impact on team culture. So teams take on the persona of their of their head coaches by and large. But that filters through the the quarterback. Teams take on the character of their quarterback to a large degree. So if the quarterback is a turd, that empowers every other turd on the team. And actually this brings me back to something I've I've mentioned on this podcast before it's years ago, so only longtime listeners will remember this, but this is one of those things that when I was talking to Jimbo Fisher years ago, uh, one of the things he mentioned was he he had a theory in terms. Basically, I, I I called it the knucklehead theory, but he basically said, "Look, you can you can bring in a couple knuckleheads per class, but that's about the max you can do. But you know, you you got to save it for the guys that can really play. You can bring in a couple knuckleheads per class. You can't bring in more than that though, or they'll they'll start to find each other, and then they'll infect the whole locker room. But you can bring in you know." a couple knuckleheads here or there, as long as the rest of the locker room's fine. And then the rest of the locker room can convert the knuckleheads to, to a large degree. But if there's enough knuckleheads that they find each other and then they start replicating, they, they start to infect and infest the rest of the locker room. And then they'll, they'll convert a bunch of the, a bunch of the kids that are sort of marginal or reasonably good kids. They'll, they'll all of a sudden convert things to, to be worse. And if you look at how the Fisher era ended, it's pretty obvious that, the knuckleheads found each other, right? So the, the the culture went the wrong direction. For there, There's no doubting that at this point. I mean, th- that's not even a dispute. And the question is how that happens. Now, they brought in too many bad kids. That's, there's no doubt about that. Or too many guys that just weren't going to be along, along cultural lines what they wanted. But I, I actually think that there's an addendum that needs to be made to Fisher's knucklehead theory. And that is you can bring in, you know, a couple knuckleheads per class and you actually kind of need him. I mean, that's something else that we've discussed on this podcast as well, is that in 2016, one of the problems with that team was that they had too many nice guys on defense. And you got to have a couple guys who are a little edgy. You got to have a couple knuckleheads. So it's it's that balance that our 
that, that, that you want in terms of your team where you got to have a couple guys that if they don't have good leadership might go a little bit off the deep end just as they're going to play on edge. They're going to bring that physical presence to some degree. But you want your team to be dominated by the guys who are going to keep all keep everybody else accountable. And so and, and you look at the 2013 team and you had the, the, the right mix of that where you had. Uh, the, the the real team leaders on that team were Telvin Smith and LaMarcus Joyner, Joyner in particular. But basically, Joyner and Smith wouldn't let that team slack off in the offseason. They wouldn't let that team lose at all. They wouldn't let that team take plays off in practice. And Timmy Jernigan to a lesser extent as well. But those were the guys that were the leaders on that team. And to some degree, uh, booting Greg Reed the year before set the stage for that team to have the kind of accountability and discipline that they did. I'm not sure that they would have been what they were had they not actually had that situation with, with Reed getting kicked off the team where everybody was going to walk straight. And a lot of people think that Winston was the leader on that team, on that 2013 team, and he wasn't. The, the older guys let him talk, and he talked a lot, but he wasn't really the leader on that team, and he was not, uh, he was not the accountability on that team. He was a leader on the 2014 team, and the 2014 team, as you'll remember, was not nearly as disciplined and, and slacked off a good bit and all of that. And you can look at the difference in just how fat they came into, into, into camp. I mean, you go back and listen to my preseason camp episode in that one, and I've been told, these guys look a little out of shape. Well, they, they were, because partly because they just didn't have the leadership that they'd had in the prior year. And the addendum that I would say is, yeah, you can, you can bring in a couple knuckleheads per class so long as one of those knuckleheads isn't a quarterback or isn't isn't your primary quarterback because when the knucklehead is a quarterback that empowers all the turds that empowers the knuckleheads and so uh so that's that's i think where you you can bring in a, a few knuckleheads as long as the rest of the locker room is fine but you can't have a few knuckleheads and the quarterback be one of those knuckleheads. Otherwise that, that actually that's like uh, pouring gasoline on the, on the locker room in that regard. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And the other side to this then is the, the, the flip side of this is that you can have high character quarterbacks. I mean, nobody's going to argue that Sean McGuire, for example, uh, didn't, you know, work hard and do all those things. Uh, nobody's going to argue that Clint Trickett was a bad guy. You know, is a, a low character guy. But the problem is that you have to have a quarterback who can really play too. So that's the flip side. You have to, you, you have to have a high character guy, but you also have to have a guy that can play well enough that the team respects him. So it's, it's one of those things where if the guy's a turd, he empowers every other turd. And if he can't play, then the turds don't respect him. So you, you basically have to, and, and this is why it's so critical to have that position under you know it have quality at that position in order to ha sustain winning at, at the college football level uh at the at the FBS level and at every level of, of football really you have to have somebody who who's both good enough to gain to have the respect of his team and stable and high character enough to be able to keep all of the knuckleheads in line and maintain the focus and discipline in the program that you want and and, and really push the character forward and you start asking, like, prior to the 2020 class, who was Florida State's last quarterback who really had had both of those things? 
was good enough to have everybody respect him, but also wasn't a knucklehead. You start going down the list and you go, hmm, man. Um, so not Blackman. I mean, good guy. Also pretty unstable in certain respects and immature and definitely not at the point where, you know, all the whole team just respects him for his level of play. Definitely not Francois. Everett Golson, you know, not he doesn't really fit the uh, the, the 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 talent side of that. McGuire, same thing. Winston, well, obviously some other issues there. And then you get back to Jake Coker and you're like, man, was Coker it? Like, wow, was that the last one? And then Coker transferred before he really got, you know, was was in position. So, wow. So you have to go back to EJ Manuel, who signed in 2009. You go a, you go a decade between quarterbacks that really fit that bill. I mean, that's that that's that's uh that that goes a long way to explaining sort of where the culture got uh, on the Florida State side. That's that's worth worth thinking about. Now the question is: Is Brock Purdy going to be one of those guys who has Florida State level talent? I think there's some there's reason to hope that he does. That he has you know the the kind of talent that need that that he can be a top level FBS player. And the character to be able to to be able to lead and, and help the help the uh, the culture be where it should should be. We'll, we'll find out. I don't know. And and again, Rotomaker is young enough, and he he's not the same level of talent as Purdy. We've said that from the beginning. Um, that he may grow into that, and I think character wise and all of that, there's there's reason to expect good things there. But it's still a little ways away in in terms of the talent side, in terms of the performance, the play side. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing to, to ask. Is it, has it been since 2009? I mean, this, the 2020 class actually, is that the first class in, in 10 years where you can say that they actually signed a kid at a high school that fits that bill? I mean, that's, that's crazy. I want to pause for a moment and thank Louis Marquez from Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. Over 90% of homebuyers search online first these days, so it's critical to make sure your listing stands out with great pictures and video. Lewis is a trained photographer and videographer. Other realtors have hired him to come photograph their listings, and nobody will make your home look better for prospective homebuyers, including smooth, professional walkthrough video. And if you're in the market to buy a home in the greater Jacksonville area, no one will outwork Lewis. He was a manager at the Pickup Publix on Ocala and Tallahassee, so you know he works hard and understands customer service. He'll help you find the right house and make sure every step goes smoothly through closing. Information in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. So I withheld some judgment on the defensive side in my Hot Takes podcast. I wanted to go back and take a closer look at what was going on in the uh, in the game by rewatching it. Uh, partly because I didn't have access to Fox Sports South uh, during the game, so I had to watch it on FirstRowSports.eu, which I had to basically disinfect my whole computer after that, and it was. Uh, choppy enough and everything that I, I wasn't able to really see the defense, see everything on defense that I wanted to on my first go round. So I wanted to really get a chance to watch it and replay some things and see it the way that I, I, uh, I wanted to have, have that detail before I, I said anything, but you know, the, the, the defensive side, there, there are a few things that stood out. So I, I would still say that the first thing that stands out is that the defense is still just nowhere near physical enough on the, in the, in the front seven. I mean, they just, they're soft. 
And you, you think about the lack of disruption from the de- from the defensive line. No sacks from from Florida State edge players from defensive uh, defensive ends through three games. And I know they got rid of it quickly in this game, but man, come on! I mean, you got to start getting some disruption from your defensive line. And you know, the linebackers are no better in that front. But we'll cover some more of that when we get to the, some some of the question and answer. Uh, but. Uh, and I still think that Amari Gaynor and, and Lars Woodby are playing out of position. I, I was encouraged by some younger players in certain certain areas. I, I thought uh, Mal- I, I thought Ray, uh, the defensive lineman, I thought he flashed a little bit inside, showed some good quickness. I liked him coming out of high school. The question was whether he would be able to retain that quickness uh, while putting on the the requisite weight. And it appears that he he may he may end up being a player. Uh, so that's good. But all in all, I, I just still think it's it's a combination of there are a combination of problems on the defense, but it starts with a lack of physicality. You're not going to beat people if your defensive line is soft and basically just flips the switch once in a while to make a play. And if your linebackers on top of that are consistently late in the wrong gap and soft when they arrive. And, you know, then you think about they're they're learning to uh, to pattern match and do some of those things and they're still not very good at it. It just it's there's a lot of there's a, there's still a big mess kind of in that middle part in terms of the linebackers where they're not they're not uh, they're not making plays. So I don't think it's really a, a scheme issue as much. I, I think the scheme can can win. I just think that it's a combination of not really having pl- having the right players in the right places in in certain cases for the scheme. Again, I think Gainer needs to be at the Fox and Lars Woodby is out of position at that boundary safety. But I, I just think that that's that's really the the issue schematically more than the actual scheme itself. The scheme itself is mostly fine. It's just they're getting pushed around at times by Jacksonville State and. They're not getting any. They're not getting a, a ton of pressure, and they're not creating havoc or disruption. So at that point, you got to find a way to do it. And I do think that they could they could press more a little bit, particularly on the field side. They they don't always press, and I understand why they're doing that. They're pattern matching on that side. But I, I do think they need to do, to get better at at disrupting opposing uh, opposing passing uh, attacks. And they did move. Uh, I noticed in this game that they did move. Uh, Samuel, Asante Samuel Jr. to the boundary side. So they put their best corner on the boundary side to take away some stuff there. And I think that that was successful to to, to some degree. Uh, but they've had some problems on the boundary side. The, the, you know, Dent and, and, uh, and Jones really did not get it done on the boundary side in the first two, two games. And, and they've got to fix that because most teams, I mean, it's a much shorter throw. It's an easier throw for quarterbacks. Most teams are going to spend a good bit of, a good bit of their uh, offensive attack trying to attack the boundary because it's an easier throw. Uh, so you've got to have your best cover guys over there. Normally, you want your best cover guy to be a bigger, more physical guy because you're going to also have to use him in run support, and that's also going to normally be a press position, and teams are going to put their taller wide receiver there for some fades and, and back shoulder stuff. So Samuel's not the ideal guy for that, but he's the best co- cover corner, and they made that decision to move him over there, and I think that was probably the right call uh, And until the other guys prove that they can actually cover and cover to the level that they need to. That's what you have to do. So... That is one adjustment that I think that they made that uh, can be helpful. It's just, again, I don't think it it's ideal. 
but it's what you have to do. So yeah, uh, that's, I'm not going to spend too much, too much more time breaking down defense against Jacksonville state on air. Uh, I will post a few videos, but that's, that's, that's basically where I'm going to, where I'm going to end with that. I'm going to go ahead and take another break. Be right back with question and answer. This segment is brought to you by Garage Makeovers, the top-rated garage remodeling company in South Florida, according to HomeAdvisor and Angie's List. They're licensed and insured and have been serving all of Palm Beach and Broward County since 2005. So if you need painting and drywall work or overhead storage, polyaspartic flooring, cabinets, shelving, slot wall, accessories for anything you have, call Nathan at Garage Makeovers for all of your storage and organizational needs. You'll have the best garage in the neighborhood. Information in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. So I've gotten a bunch of questions as usual. I'm uh, going to go ahead and cover some of these in uh, in this pre-Notre Dame preview podcast. But um, most of these going to deal with, uh, with the quarterback positions and the defense. And there's some overlapped with what I've already talked about already. Uh, so we'll just go ahead and, and get to it. So first question. Adam Fuller's defense looked more like Jeremy Pruitt's defense when he was at Memphis. Why is he being so passive at Florida State? Not many blitzes. Why can't he run the same defense he did at Memphis with all the blitzing, but can't do it at Florida State now with better players? Well, I think there's a few things here. So first of all, there are some statements that aren't exactly true in part of this. So I should address that, I guess, first, which is, and actually I should address the underlying assumption first, which is that Jeremy Pruitt ran a defense that had a bunch of blitzing. Uh, so, you know, Adam Fuller's defense looked like Pruitt's defense when he was at Memphis. Why isn't he running the same defense he did at Memphis with all the blitzing now? Well, he, first of all, Pruitt's defense didn't blitz very much, not not by percentage, and, and certainly not if you define blitzing by bringing six or more. Uh, Pruitt's defense most of the time was bringing four. If you go back to that 2013 season, they brought four most of the year. And in most of those games, they're just, they're rushing four pretty much the whole game. In certain situations, they would bring the star oftentimes. Uh, That would be Joyner. So you'd see him come off the edge for a five-man look. And then they'd play some sort of fire zone behind it. So basically a cover three match behind it. Uh, But they didn't bring a lot of blitz stuff under Pruitt. That's just not what they did. It was much more of a base defense and pattern matching and getting a lot of pressure up front. And again, this is one of those things that you have to you have to distinguish between pressure and blitzing. That that 2013 Pruitt defense got a ton of pressure on teams, but it didn't need to blitz to do it. And that's the difference. So that's the first thing. And we'll, we'll talk about why that is in a moment, but... That's the first thing. Second thing is, I don't think there's a there's a, a really big difference between what Pruitt's doing or between what Fuller's doing right now at Florida State and what he did defensively at Memphis. It's not like he was running a bunch, you know, just a blitz every down defense at Memphis and then isn't doing that at Florida State. So it's not there's not as much distance between what he did at Memphis and what he's doing at Florida State as as what there is implied here. Though I do think that there was more overall variety at Memphis than what we're seeing at Florida state so far. So in terms of changes after the snap, in terms of some blitz looks and things like that, there was more, uh, there was more variety. There were more 
options that they used at Memphis than they have so far at Florida State. But that's not quite the same thing as saying, well, you know, he was, you know, blitz happy at Memphis and definitely not so at Florida State. The the percentages are probably pretty close. I mean, I haven't gone through and actually done it, but the percentages are pretty close, I'm betting, uh, in terms of how often he's blitzing versus not. Uh, the, the the difference is that they got pressure at Memphis because they they weren't so soft. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the big difference. Now, in terms of why there's a little bit less variation, why certain blitz packages are not being used as much at Florida State, it's a combination of things. Uh, so there, there, it is true that there is a little bit less variety. And the main, th- main reason for that is without spring practice in the first year of a new system, you don't have the ability to use the whole, the whole defense. You just don't. You haven't installed it all. Or if you, you have installed it all, you haven't installed it all and repped it enough to be able to trust that guys are going to do their jobs. And your first order of business as a defensive coordinator, it's sort of like in, in medicine, you say do no harm is the first thing. Well, as a defensive coordinator, the first rule, the first rule, the first, your first job is don't give up big plays. Don't, you know, basically don't screw it up. Don't make it easy. So, and, and the, the way you can make it easiest for an offense is basically to give them free stuff because guys are busting assignments all the time. So you, you can't do that. The other reason is, is personnel. They just they, they are limited in terms of what they're comfortable having certain guys do. So you can't ask a guy to do what he doesn't do well. So if you're going to do a lot, a lot of the blitzes and things that they used at Memphis were zone blitzes or were uh, blitzes where they drop, say, the Fox in coverage and have someone else rush in his place where the Fox is taking up a blocker, but he's not actually rushing. Well, the problem with that is, do you really want Janarius Robinson in coverage a bunch more? You start to recognize that you can't do some of that stuff with the with the personnel that you have, which is a big part of why I think it's important to move to move Amari Gaynor to that Fox position. I think he is the best fit for that spot, but they obviously disagree with my assessment there. So there you go. I think that's the biggest that's the biggest thing. The other uh, another big problem, though, is basically that the linebackers are a big weakness. Oh, and by the way, I should also mention Pruitt's defense only got good and only got only get started getting a bunch of pressure once they moved Christian Jones from inside linebacker to edge. Once he was once they moved to a 425 cuz you remember people do not remember the first part of 2013. They started the year with Hicks at at defensive end and they were playing essentially a 52. And then after they got shredded against Boston College and were down at the half in that game, all of a sudden they shifted and they put Christian Jones at the at the edge and they went to a 4-2-5 with Joyner at, at the star. And all of a sudden that defense transformed and they were able to get pressure with four. They were able to do a lot of things that they wanted to do without having to bring all the extra pressure, without having to add an extra guy to that. And that, by the way, is what I keep going back to. Dang it. The the refusal to move Gaynor to Fox continues to be, to me, the biggest problem on this defense. Because you're preventing that. You're preventing the ability to get more consistent uh, pressure on the passer from a guy who, and also the ability to drop and do some things that you want to do in in the blitz game, uh, in some zone blitzing and things like that, that you really want to do. 
because you can't trust anybody else to drop and cover from that spot. So to me, that's, that's the biggest problem. But the other big problem has to do with the linebackers. The biggest weakness in this defense is the linebackers. And you're looking at in 2013, they had, they had the Terrence brothers. (laughs) They had Telvin and Terrence Smith. Yes, I know they're not related. They had Telvin and Terrence Smith at linebacker where they were able basically to use those guys in coverage, almost like safeties, while also those guys were attacking the line of scrimmage and making making tackles in the proper gaps against the run. So they were able to basically play sideline to sideline with those guys in pass coverage and in and against outside runs while those guys took care of business when teams tried to run the football. So you compare Telvin and Terrence Smith to Warner and Rice or you know Dix who had the lowest uh well the second lowest uh PFF grade this last week. They just don't have linebackers that they can rely on right now. And so and and what what I kept seeing and what I keep seeing you go back and you watch the Jacksonville State game and against the run, you're just seeing linebackers consistently run around blocks, uh, go into the, you know, run square into a closed gap and not scrape to the open gap. They're in the wrong gap. Or when they're in the right gap, oftentimes they arrive soft. So, yeah, I mean the the linebacker position has been has been really has, has not has still not been good. Thing is, it's probably still been better than it has been. I mean, I, I think there's been improvement there. It's just been bad for a while, and so the linebacker position is not good enough. And then you think about in pass coverage. I, I've talked about on this podcast before. The linebacker position is really where pattern matching is most difficult to coach, and it's also the most advantageous place for pattern matching. So when you think about that, that basically makes it the, that, that's what makes it difficult. That's, you can't, the teams that are, that are having success against Florida State, and one of the reasons that teams are able to, uh, to keep from getting pressured or sacked is they're making a bunch of throws against the backers. They're throwing those little glance routes and things like that, where you've got a conflict player, one of the linebackers, and he's not in, he's not able to take that away and stop the run. And, or they're just throwing to a tight end who's one-on-one with a backer and he's just winning. So the backers are part of a pro- part of the problem. And then you combine that with the defensive line that's allegedly elite or supposed to be elite that's just not played anywhere close to that. that it's not pulling its weight. And you're not stopping the run well enough because the whole front is a problem. And then you're not getting pressure with four and so when you then bring five, now you're now you're having to cover one on one with a tight, uh, say with a with a linebackers against someone, and now you're losing that matchup every time. So even when you do bring pressure, you're just giving up plays. Either one of your safeties or one of your backers can't can't cover. So there you go. To me, you solve a lot of these problems by moving some personnel, and I've said that for weeks. I will continue to say that. I, I still think that that's the biggest solution here, but what do I know? Now, got a few other questions, mostly about the quarterback position, and we'll go ahead and go through that <laughs> for next next question. Still think Travis can't throw? 
Well, it's not fair to say he can't throw, and that's not what we've said all along. It's that he's very limited as a as a thrower, and that much was very obvious in this game, just like in any other game that he's played in or in some of the practices that I've seen. So, you know, Travis is not going to win a lot of games with his arm, and he's going to be it's going to be a limiting factor against a defense that can actually play. Against Jacksonville State, he certainly throws well enough that you don't have to worry about it. But although he threw very nearly a pick six in one place that was dropped. And, uh, you know, there were a couple others that were iffy. But, you know, he just, he he does not have a Florida State level arm to play that position. Now, can you still manage to get by with his arm? Well, I think we saw that against Jacksonville State, that if he makes good decisions and uses his legs in the, in the, in the running game as a threat, you can do a lot of things with him still. And it still can be an improvement over what they've had. I mean, one of the other questions that uh, that I got was uh, Saturday looked like the 2013 Auburn offense triple run pass option. Travis gives the running game uh, gives the running game a boost, and he can actually throw it. Where's this been? Why didn't he start for Georgia Tech? Well, couple couple things. First of all, he didn't play a bunch in camp. He, he missed a lot of camp, so you can't really just have a guy jump in and start when he doesn't know the whole offense, when he hasn't repped anything, and when he hasn't been in camp. So that's that's reason number one. Number two is because of how how limited his arm is. But it is true the comparison to 2013 Auburn is is a fair one, and you know part of that is by design. I mean, you think about it. Norvell's offense, even the terminology. For those of you who don't know the terminology, and that's probably pretty close to all of you, even the terminology in Norvell's offense is borrowed straight from Malzahn. I mean, some things have been changed, but the the offense is Malzahn's offense, but it's a it's a fork off of Malzahn's offense. You got to remember, Norvell coached under Malzahn. That's where he first got his offense. So Norvell's offense is a spinoff. It's a it's a fork of of the Malzahn offense. But he's added a little bit more variety in the run game in in more traditional run game concepts. So you know more like Jimbo Jimbo's offense in that regard. And then he's added some pro pass concepts and some shot plays that he's borrowed from. Uh, people like Sean McVay, and uh, he he's added some air raid type stuff uh, that he's borrowed pretty heavily from uh, from the Mike Leach tree, mostly from the Lincoln Riley side of the Mike Leach tree. So if you if you kind of hybridized, if you if you want to talk about what what uh, Norvell's offense is, it's built on the foundation of Gus Malzahn with pieces from say uh, the Lincoln Riley tree and uh, pieces from sort of a more NFL-heavy tree. That's basically what it is. So, yeah, they're, they're, the thing that Travis allows you to do is to go full Malzahn, go with the approach that, that Malzahn has gone with when he has had a quarterback like Nick Marshall who can't really throw. He's, not a, he's limited as a thrower, but he can sure run and basically sell out to, to use that. And that's basically what you're going to have to do as long as Travis is the quarterback is you're going to take a few deep shots because he can throw, he can, he can throw it a long, a long enough way. You can throw it downfield, you know, you can throw that and then basically use his legs in all sorts of different ways to create some balance in the running game without having to use, without being able to use his, uh, his arm in all sorts of other areas that you'd want to on the offense. So that's what you're doing. And now, that's 
That's basically what you're limited to, but you can do a lot there. There's a lot that you can cause problems with if you have a good offense around them. The bigger, the other bigger problem is that if you're going to do that, you want to be really strong up front. That 2013 Auburn team had a very good offensive line. And you want to have some really, really good backs to be able to, to further develop that. And, you know, they're, they've got good backs, but they're, they're good backs, not great backs. So that, that is what it is. Now, uh, as far as Travis's arm and what he offers you, you can, you can throw basically your deep shots. Uh, you can get him out of the pocket and, and have him make some plays on the run. Uh, but what you're not going to get is a lot of the routine throws. Uh, a lot of the stuff where you're, you're throwing for possession, basically it turns into a deep shot and screen pass type offense with some quick game thrown in. You're not going to get much else. And, and, you know, even there, you're going to have some limitations just because of some accuracy and, and, and such. Some of those things are, are, are a little bit of an issue and the inability to drive the ball into, into, into coverage. Uh, windows will close a little bit more quickly because he's just not able to drive the ball in there. Now, still, I think you can win with him if you, if you can manage to find ways to stop anybody with your defense. That's the problem. So, all right, next question. Uh, do you think Rotomaker can improve to a serviceable backup level or was that as good as we can expect? Guys, it's his third game in a college uniform after not after having no spring. I mean, he early enrolled so that he could get the advantage of spring and he didn't get it after having a weird, you know, COVID ridden uh, uh, preparation, camp preparation. You're looking at that is the that is the bottom that you would expect from Rotomaker. You're you're. <laughs> Yeah, he can improve not only to a serviceable backup level, he still could become better than that. You know, the guy could become a serviceable game managing type starter down the line if that's what you need. Now, ideally, you recruit over him. Let's be honest. Ideally, you recruit elite guys that, you know, are the Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Jameis Winston, uh, you know, that that kind of talent that you recruit over guys like Rotomaker. That's what you hope for. But basically he's one of those guys that you bring in hoping that by year two, year three, by about year three, you've got a quality game manager so that if the starter gets hurt, you can, you can do well. Or if by year four, he winds up being the guy that can really start. You've, you, you know that you've got a guy that has developed and can, can really play, but he's not, he was not a guy that was going to come in and be an instant difference maker. I mean, I don't think anybody expected that. But, you know, I think he can definitely grow into a quality college quarterback. Uh, just, again, you're limited in terms of overall arm strength and just arm talent. Uh, but a lot of other pieces are there. You know, can, you, can, you can win with that kind of guy. I mean, Alabama's won with those guys in their fourth, fifth year before, where the arm is not elite. The arm is, is limited to some degree. But you can, you can make up for, for that sort of thing in all sorts of different ways if he's accurate. So, and I think he's, he's, he's shown some accuracy. So there's some chance that he could become a, a player down the line, but it's just not right now. All right. Uh, final question. Is Chubba Purdy a replica of Travis, but with better throwing ability? I can see this offense taking off under Travis and eventually Purdy. So not really a replica of Travis with, with better, better throwing ability. Purdy is more of a, actually, this is the second to last question. Purdy is more of a, uh, of a pocket passer with running ability. 
Uh, he's about as good an athlete as Travis. So if you're if you're just saying is he as good an athlete as Travis, but with better better throwing ability, then yeah, that's about right. But he's not. I mean, Travis is one of those guys who basically has to be making a play on the run, or just you know launching the ball downfield on a deep shot in order to really have any impact. Purdy can make all the throws. You know, is he an elite thrower? Not really, but. He's he's got a good enough arm and and good enough accuracy and all that to make all the throws. I mean, he can he can run you can run your whole offense with him, and he can be a po- a pocket passer first. That's really what he is, and then he can you can use him in the running game and and use his legs this in in very similar ways to what you do with with uh, with Travis. But that's an add on for him rather than the you know the the that's not where things start with Purdy. So yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. Is it you know he's a pocket passer who runs like a dual threat guy rather than a dual threat guy who can throw it a little bit. So, uh, final question. This is a real final question. Realistically, do you think we see much or any of Purdy this year? Given that we'll probably never be enough be up enough to play backups, maybe versus Clemson when we're done it down a ton. My view is that you're we're going to see Purdy play basically as soon as Purdy's ready to play, as soon as he's cleared as it's safe for him to play physically. And as soon as he has shown that he understands what they're going to be asking him to do and whatever packages they'll have him run. As soon as, as soon as those two things are in place, you're going to see Purdy play. You're going to see him out there. Now, I, as far as starting and all of that, that's a different story. I think, I think we'll see them ride, probably ride out with, uh, with Travis until, you know, somebody comes in and takes that job away from him. But, yeah, I, I think I think we'll see Purdy probably sooner than later. I mean, as soon as he's as soon as he is ready to actually contribute and and do so safely, they're going to get him on the field because they, they know that they need that. So so yeah, I, I think we'll probably see him uh, rather than rather than not. All right, I'm going to go ahead and wrap there. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host Jason Saples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach and Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast Shop, which features stickers, magnets, and other Seminole gear. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. Special thanks to those above the bleach numbers level. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. I made this.